All right, welcome to Dignities and Disasters. This is the ongoing series where we look at uh, complicated, often divisive issues. And we work to zoom out and get a, a more whole picture to understand more, more sides, to recognize our blind spots so that we can be more useful. We can actually engage in these conversations uh, with people that are important to us in a useful way and not get so entrenched into our biases and things like that. Uh, this is Robert McNaughton, and I am with my seeming co-host and regular guest, Michael Porcelli. What, what do you think about this so far? I, I, I like what we're up to. I, I, I personally enjoy kind of rising above maybe the, you know, everyday struggles of you know the immediate near term and thinking about things from this 10,000 foot view you know these long-standing like historical dialectics between different ideas about how we should run society I mean these things I remember reading Plato's Republic back in college and it's like this kind of discussion I think is really enjoyable I mean it needs to be uh, eventually cashed out in terms of like everyday decisions and how we choose to run society. But I think it's good to kind of reflect on the, the ideas themselves and how they interact because they do actually factor into history and politics of the day in kind of like a deeper current, right? A deeper thing, underlying thing that gives shape to whatever's happening in everyday discussions. So I'm, I like that we're doing it this way. Yeah, me too. I like uh, I like all of this, even though it is quite uh, edgy and uh, it feels vulnerable in a lot of ways. We're tackling some big topics here that people have very strong feelings about, that have had strong feelings about since before we were born. And so mm -hmm. I, f I feel very shy to like be trying to take a stand on things that I feel like I have no business talking about. But at the same time, I see a lot of people out there throwing these terms around and, uh, you know, and missing each other and talking about different things. And it's kind of like, mm -hmm. uh, we were, we were chatting a little bit before, you know, we hit record. It's like, a you know, semiotics, like the difference between like a word, what you mean by the word, and then the actual thing. <laughs> and so it's like, oftentimes yeah. when we're talking with complicated issues like this, I can say a word capitalism, and I have mm -hmm. a whole thought bubble around me around what capitalism means and all of the ties to it. And then you have your interpretation of all of those things. Yep. And those don't always intersect that well. Yep, totally. I mean, you know, sometimes conversations end up derailing into like, oh, I think we, this is a semant an issue of semantics. You're like, an, it's like, oh, well, what does that mean? Well, it just sort of means like, are we are we arguing about the ideas or are we arguing about just defining the words differently? And I think it's more important to get to the place where you're able to argue about the ideas. And sometimes you need to like define your terms. That's kind of a classic mathematician move to define your terms, right? Like which you do need to do if you're yes. going to do the discussion properly. And and what, you know, the one of the techniques I've we've seen is uh, from the rationalists is the idea of like taboo word. Like, oh, you're, it's, it's like the Princess Bride. You keep using that word. <laughs> I do not think it means what you think it means. So right. it's like, well, let's neither of us use that word. And let's just talk about the idea that we mean, right? Sure. And like actually wrestle it out at the level of the ideas. And that I think is the important thing to be able to do. 
Right. Yeah. And there's that rolls up to increasing mutual understanding, coordination, collaboration. But also it's like, I think the, the reason to have healthy debate, whether you're a business leader or just, you know, a person um, going through this complicated life is a healthy debate can expose the parts of how I understand the world of like, oh, that was a part that got installed in kindergarten <laughs> or from when I watched totally. a movie, you know, that, uh, that that's yeah. the reason I've been thinking about it that way. And so in a, in a healthy debate of where it's, it's collaborative in the sense that it's like, I'm not trying to destroy you as a person. I am trying to expose the blind spots or give you new ideas and new things to work about. So there has to be some stability in the relationship to have healthy debate, but it is totally healthy in our anti-fragile development to becoming stronger in our, in our foundation of our arguments. Yep. Totally, man. Let's, let's get into this, this week's topic, capitalism. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And so you've been joining me for these kind of what I've been calling the foundational series. You know, we started with postmodernism to kind of give some some philosophical foundations for what we're trying to do here. And then we 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 moved on to socialism. And uh, and that, you know, was a quite an exploration. And it, and it only makes sense for us to do capitalism now as is in some ways as a juxtaposition to the last episode, mm-hmm. but, you know, continuing to, to find our form with this type of uh, context of what we're doing here. So yes, capitalism is our, our topic for today. Uh, mm-hmm. It's a very, very simple, straightforward topic. And uh, so let's, <laughs> let's dive in. And as we were, you know, we, we brought up some in the, the, recording on socialism and it's worth repeating now it's like the concept of capitalism as a standalone term didn't come along until you know das kapital and karl marx was discerning of like here's what's wrong with what's happening with mm-hmm. markets in, in the world and so therefore you know marxist socialism but you know we can go all the way back to 18th century and adam smith and the wealth of nation nations where it's like pointing out it's like okay what what do we mean here um what what is effective for having private ownership of the means of production and the operation for profit as a way of getting goods and services into the hands of people that need them. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Well, let's do a little bit of that historical embedded kind of emergent moment. There's all kinds of different ways that humans throughout all of history have organized labor, goods, services, exchange, buying, selling, or other ways of doing that. And, you know, at at the time when modern industrial styles of organizing the economy came about, the predominant thing before that was this serfdom, right? It was like, okay, we had these lords of manners and people were sort of in a kind of almost like a servitude thing where, you know, you sort of lived on somebody else's land and you worked the fields and you kind of got to eat when there was enough and right. But you didn't really own much of anything except maybe your immediate sort of personal possessions, you know, but like, you know, and there was this, this very different kind of class distinction. And that was a way you might say of kind of organizing labor and the distributions of goods and services. That was the medieval feudalistic mode of production you know this is to kind of borrow a little bit from from marx's you know historical account of those things and then these social innovations which i think of as like a a stack of things kind of came about that you know gave us what we now call capitalism and it's not just sort of one thing this sort of is the capitalism right it's like a number of different things like 
free market exchange is, is one of those that we voluntarily can enter into an exchange as a buyer and seller of a good or a service or a buyer and seller of our own labor. That's right. Um, the idea that uh, wage labor sort of takes over things like previous things like slavery, serfdom and indentured servitude, those sort of become like n- no more like the, the main way of organizing labor. But we do this idea of like, I'm an empl- there's an employers and like laborers and that, that, Contract sort of is another sort of like foundation of what we think of as the capitalist economy. Um, you could think of um, the collectivization of ownership in the form of uh, the creation of the first corporations, which I think the Dutch did the first one, mm-hmm. the Dutch East Indies Company. That's another kind of foundation of what we think of as the capitalist mode, so to speak, right? Like the profit motive is part of that too. Oh, we're going to maybe like invest now so that we can have returns later, right? Like, so we're participating in the risk now, and then we're kind of like time deferring the potential upside in terms of returns at a later date as a group of people who are the owners of the corporation. That's, that's an innovation that kind of leads to capitalism. Yes. And you're making, making that collective like limited liability so that none of us can screw each other over, you know, so you, there's like a, a like a legal protection shell that kind of gets created. Um, these are all things that that give us what we think of as the capitalist economy today. Yeah, yeah, I think that is a good overview. You know, I think one of the best synonyms for capitalism is like dictionary definition. Uh, you know, is like voluntary exchange, as mm-hmm. you described, is like you know, the freedom to enter into a transaction without any requirement by the state or someone else to, to dictate how you're going to interact there. And then mm-hmm. one of the, mm-hmm. the great features of that, and this is you know, where the, the Austrian economists and Hayek and von Mises and others who put a lot of emphasis as like the main feature of capitalism is the pricing mechanism is that yes. like, and that's the, the market, you know, it's like, I'm bringing my good to you. And based on the other opportunities for you to get that good sets a price for that. And based on that price, that gives us an informed understanding of the supply and demand for that good or service, right? That we mm-hmm. as producers can then make time our uh, our production such to optimize for the the, the pricing mechanism and uh, and benefit mm-hmm. from that, and that lends itself to great innovation, uh, lends itself mm-hmm. to solving many problems in the world, especially the 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 main problem of bringing goods and services to people who need them. Yep. Allocation. Yeah. So this, this is a cool idea. This was like a 20th century innovation on top of the kind of historical capitalism. You you might say, you know, Adam Smith and some of the original free market theorists were maybe arguing it more from a a principle based perspective or like a moral or ethical based perspective. There was kind of this new form of thought at the time, you know, we kind of, broadly call the emergence of, of modernity or modernism in, in the history of philosophy. Uh, but then when you get to the Austrians, they, they almost take like a, like a mathematical or a systems theory kind of idea where it's like, look, like how do we, it, it was almost in response to these central planning economies at the time that were sort of failing. You could say like the communist failure, like how, how is it? It was called the calculation problem at the time, which was like, well, how do we, how do we determine in our central planned system 
how much of what to make and you know how to get it to where it needs to go right sort of this is the the argument that the austrians made against that was this idea of like look no person or even group of persons has enough knowledge or information to decide that the actual information itself is yes. a kind of decentralized calculation that's right it is an emergent quality of all the decisions of all the buyers and sellers in the market it's it's almost like an information theory justification for capitalism this idea that like the calculation itself outputs gives outputs in the form of pricing yes and that is the way we actually can coordinate the distribution of goods and services in the in the best way now the best that's an arguable claim right. right there it's the best but that's the argument that they're making yes and exactly and that's that's where we can start to turn and, and look at the other sides of things and you know we've been talking about the features and even in kind of idealistic terms uh and which have uh, can can work very well in a lot of places um you know, especially when we're talking about real estate, <laughs> you know, when we're yeah. talking about actual tangible uh, means of production and goods and services. And uh, they're just kind of mm -hmm. the, the ideal that like a, a free person is a responsible person, that if uh, mm -hmm. someone can freely engage in exchange, then they're going to, to bring greater versions of, of themselves to the table and take care of the means of production that are going to, they're going to actually act in accordance with, you know, higher virtue <laughs> in, in a sense. But when mm -hmm. we start moving into the world of unreal estate, you know, things that are fictitious uh, structures, you look at the, the subprime mortgage crisis in 2008, mm -hmm. where banks were dealing in these kinds of fictitious instruments collateralized debt obligations, and they're just making uh, bets on top of bets on top of bets. Well, these aren't tangible goods that anyone has to take responsibility for the um, the lower quality of. So all of a sudden, these these mechanisms, which have historically worked relatively well, start to break down. And then the ugular sides of capitalism, you know, start to start to become more apparent. And that's where we can start mm -hmm. to, to look at corporatism and mm -hmm. cronyism and regulatory capture. And uh, I think a lot of the, the people who are holding more of the ideal of capitalism will say these are kind of per perversions of capitalism and perversive uh, perceptions of it. But I think when a lot of people that I interact with today kind of say, ooh, capitalism, that's oh, it's such a capitalist thing, you know, with that bitter taste in their mouth. This is a lot of what, what they're thinking. And so let's let's start animating that side more. Awesome. Uh yeah. Um, yeah where do we where <laughs> do we begin here? Like so I mean, it's kind of funny to me to, it, I, the way that I have thought about it, it's like it's like a series of good ideas that somehow creates this output that sort of seems like it's a bad idea. Yeah. So like, so imagine like, you know, you're the, you're forming the earliest corporations, you know, in the Netherlands, you're like, Hey, we're going to be a company. Oh, we're going to collectivize the risk. So nobody's going to like end up in the poor house if shit goes wrong, but you know, we're going to potentially, you know, profit together as well. And then it's like, okay, cool. Well, how do we add people to this? Well, we should create a thing called the stock and like had people can buy it and then be part of it. Okay. Yeah, if there's multiple companies, we should create a stock exchange where they can trade. Like, oh, this is this is sort of good. It's it's like almost like a 
an efficiency of capital allocation, like get the money where it's going to be used most wisely and the, let the, the free market of the stock exchange itself, which is sort of one of these fictitious things. It's sort of like a, exactly. like a, like a, a representation of ownership, which is like a claim on future profits, but like all these kind of things sort of seem like a good idea. And then, you know, you fast forward to what happened in the later part of the 20th century with the, hyper-financialization and the creation of these yep. exotic financial instruments. And then it sort of seems like, wait a minute, the people who seem to have the most money, they essentially just move money around and profit off of the exchange of moving money from one form into another form. And they don't seem to be creating any good or service or whatever, real economy, good or service for anybody. They're just moving it around. Now you can make the argument that, well, this is this is what efficiency in the movement or allocation of capital looks like. But like I sort of scratch my head and go, like, I, I'm not sure I totally buy that. Like it sure. sort of seems yeah. like it's become corrupted by all these layers of indirection, these kind of synthetic instruments or derivative instruments or hedge fund instruments. And you're just kind of like, what what is all of that stuff? And it just seems like a way for the people who have enough money to essentially just like gamble ish or something. Yeah. Like, and to optimize things in their favor. And, you know, and so it's yeah. like the, uh, so let's talk about, it's like, okay, what, what, you know, what is crony capitalism, you know, um, or corporatism, regulatory captures like, so, you know, cronyism, it's pr- pretty simple. It's just like when you appoint people into positions of power because it's in your mm-hmm. benefit to do so, not because of they're mm-hmm. qualified for that position, but because, Kind of, you could argue what's happening in the the current administration. It's just like, no, 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 you're gonna you're gonna do what I say, so I'm going to yeah. appoint you there, um, and maybe try to justify that you have the skills to do it. That's cronyism. Um, mm-hmm. And corporatism, you know, very very simply is just like yes, like you know, con- continuing to rig the system in a certain sense to benefit. Um, the corporations, you know, and and mm-hmm. regulatory capture, and they kind of all go together is where regulations and policies and uh, things are dictated uh, by the people in power, which are the ones that are running the, the corporations, which is actually anti-capitalist from one perspective. Uh, you know, if uh, if we look at like Wealth of Nations, Adam Smith, you know, he, he said that businessmen are enemies of capitalism and that it's actually like incumbent driven as opposed to market driven, you know, where incumbents uh, get to benefit from what's going on as opposed to the market driving innovation. And I think the, a great example of this is uh, the rise of Uber, you know, as a disruptive force, where before mm-hmm. you had just had these cab companies that just were, you know, there's lots of regulatory capture there because they just dominated that market. And, and it yep. kind of was weird. It's like, why do I have to stand out in the rain and like raise my hand and like make eye contact with the person and you know, draw them in? And then like the no brainer thing happened. Uber, you know, made this app and just was like, oh, radical innovation that we needed. Now there's plenty mm-hmm. of things to argue against mm-hmm. against Uber. But these are our concerns <laughs> with when people are in, in power, um, that it's easy for them to create a whole bunch of things like this in their in their favor. Yep. Yep. Let me let me just really embody a kind of like a lefty socialist Marxist style voice. Sure. Against this cronyism thing. So it's like there's these legal fictions or these legal constructs, you could say, that um, the state allows to exist, right? You could say like 
private property law is like the baseline. And maybe that's the beginning of the good thing, right? Like, oh, cool. People should be able to have private property, right? But you can create a kind of a collective called a corporation that's allowed to seek profit for itself. Okay. And it, it, that th- that collective is allowed to have its own property, private property belonging to a private collective. All right, cool. And then those private Profits can then become reinvested in, you know, once you kind of get enough of it, you know, some of it you're trying, oh, let's just That's reinvest right. in in the delivery of our good and service. But if it gets too high, like big corporations, they open up a little investment arm, right? They have a they have like an army of like investors, accountants, and lawyers that essentially start taking some of the excess profit and just circulating it back, turning the corporation itself into something where the profits are being used to uh, interfere, you might say, with the market itself, right? Like if we can get enough lobbyists to like pitch regulators in a certain way, like let's right. take them on a junket, right? Like, or whatever, let's get the, the regulatory construct that is happening over here to be beneficial to our company or companies like ours. And let's like cloak it in, you know, like, oh, we, we need to be responsible, you know, have responsible regulation of this market. But, and then if they stop doing what we want, then we like, okay, well, we undermine those guys and put other guys in their place. And so you kind of get this, this way of sort of the state apparatus is ostensibly there to protect consumers or to protect the market, you know, to keep the market in its state of whatever you want to call it, like voluntary exchange where, you know, or competition, which drives the pricing mechanism to its proper location that we can all, you know, allocate goods and services the way they need to be supposedly. But these distortions, you know, undermine that, right? Like they're the, what we might call like anti-competitive behavior. And, you know, the whole trust busting phase of, the late 19th and early 20th century was kind of this like, oh my gosh, you know, the Rockefellers and all those people are, they're screwing with the ability of the market to do efficient allocation by essentially like interfering yeah, one way or another, like purchasing up a huge amount of the market or, you know, getting politicians into their pockets to like do the regulations that would, in ways that would benefit them. And that's kind of what we mean by this, corrupt cronyism is that these private collectives called corporations use their excess profits to essentially alter the landscape of incentives in the so-called free marketplace such that it benefits them sort of tilts things totally in their favor and that actually that's how we get this sort of like the poor get trod underfoot right this is kind of what marx yeah, and, and sure. the socialists are pointing to like if we let that kind of balloon that feedback loop just sort of expand, you know, that's going to, you know, crush the people down at the bottom. Yeah. Yeah. Well said. I mean, and the people that are in those positions making those decisions is kind of like a, well, 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 duh. Yeah. I mean, it's not like they, they're like, Ooh, I'm going to do something nefarious and evil right now. They're just kind of like, no, I'm going to do the obvious thing, which I'm going to try to hedge things in this direction. And it's funny having run businesses uh, like we have and in, in our kind of like little burgeoning industries and just in seeing how that happens in ourselves and in our, you know, colleagues and such where they're just like, Oh no, no. I mean, it, it makes sense for us to like do partnership with this company because, uh, 
you know, no, no, because we should be free to be able to, you know, and there's this justification to suit our, our own bias at any time. So it's, sure. it's, mm-hmm. it's very, it's very natural and in a sense, um, but it is, you know, if I'm going to take a pure capitalist approach, it is, it is not market driven. It is, you know, it's gaming the market. And uh, yeah. now, you know, from a, a Keynesian perspective, and I'm not an economist. I'm, I'm, I'm very much an amateur here. I'm trying to just kind of play out common man d- distinctions between these things. Mm-hmm. But uh, you know, the Keynesian macroeconomic perspective is just like, no, no, it's you know, aggregate demand. As long as there's more spending and wealth generation happening, it does benefit everyone. So even if there is all this regulatory capture happening, that's benefiting you know some and creating more inequality. Well, at least more wealth is being generated, and that benefits everyone. And so it gets out of the zero sum fallacy. But I wouldn't say that that's a complete answer. Yeah, I mean there's all you know there's there's all kinds of ways you could you could justify it and say like hey that's fair, right? It's just sort of like the 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 aggregate set of decisions. Like I I bought a thing and now it belongs to me, right? That's private property. Or oh, okay, I want to like roll that property into this corporate construct. Oh yeah, cool. I'll you know, I'll do that as an asset purchase agreement between myself as a private citizen and now my corporate entity has now bought the thingy and I'm putting it in and you know, especially when it comes to things like what Marx called the means of production, which yes. are often like the land or the factories. These things are s- so large that they really can't, like any single private citizen owning them is, it's just really out of their reach, except to the, for the wealthiest of the wealthy. But you get this interesting side effect of that where, you, you, you know, you could make the the pro-capitalist argument of like, well, it's just fairly acquired whatever, or they're pooling their risk with their excess money. Okay, that's fine. They, you know, they're creating a thing called a limited liability construct. And yeah. that's all voluntary, fair exchange, right? But then you kind of end up in this thing where it's like, but the land and the factory and this whole thing, we're going to hire a bunch of people. And you say, but they're voluntarily choosing to be in the employee relationship, which is true, except they don't get to kind of partake in the profit or in the ownership of the thing. It's a right. little bit like, uh, you know, it's, it's analogous to renting in the sense of like, Hey, I just, you know, I just own this property, you know, and you're just living there and you're paying me and you're just paying me to like pay the bank for the ownership of the thing. I'm sort of this intermediary who's potentially not even generating any additional whatever. I'm just sort of stuck in there. So this idea that you could take a, a privately held corporation amongst the, the shareholder class, the capitalist class, and then just sort of own this whole sure. factory or farm or whatever and say, come on over here and work this thing. You know, you work this thing. You're like, okay, cool. Well, I need money in order to like not starve. And I'm willing to work that thing. So I don't starve, but like, cool. Well, what do I have to show for it? Well, all I have to show for it is whatever wages you got, but I don't have to show for any kind of aggregate long-term benefit of the thing. That's sort of shielded by the ownership class or protected from the at least in this in this instance, right? You know, they're you know, and they're going to going to be like, yeah, we we created this, you know, so we set the terms of engagement for our benefit because this is a win and they're going to say, yeah, but like we're, we are smart, successful people by setting up this mechanism that generates wealth for our family. And, you know, for the people that are saying like, 
well, you know, but what benefit is like, well, we are paying you a wage, you know, but if you want to like generate wealth then you should be investing that in your own, in your own thing, like we have. And like, you know, here, go put it in the stock market, go, go, you know, build a farm or something like that. You know, the, it is not my, it is not our contract for me to generate uh, wealth for you beyond the, the employment agreement. And, uh, and so yep. it's like it's like sure that's a perfectly valid argument, <laughs> except for the fact that the job market you know you can't just go down to the street and you know find a place that's going to have more profit sharing incentive or that the you know the markets are that open for you to to benefit and generate wealth on your own depending on your circumstance or where you're coming from. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's there's two directions we can go here. One is uh, if I were to kind of take the pro free market version like you could but like look at there's all kinds of constructs you could create a, an esop like an employee share ownership plan like sell some of your company back to the workers give them the opportunity to buy you know buy stocks i know at hp we had a whole plan sure. of doing this or you could or you could be like okay instead of constructing it as a a for-profit company like a limited liability for-profit company like an s corp or c corp or an llc in the u.s let's make another thing called a co-op where all of the right all of the workers get to be part owners and you kind of create a different, the, the foundational legal contract is a little bit different in these things. Like well, there's, there's nothing, there's, there's nothing about a free market economy that says you can't create these innovative things where maybe you create an alternative to this, this so-called problem of capitalism, which is this kind of capital accumulation by yeah. the ownership class Right. Why, why can't we just make alternative ways of redistributing the, the benefit back to the actual laborers? And some people think that that's a sufficient solution. I mean, I happen to, I, I like pluralism in the areas of solutions. So like, why not, Sure. you know, allow there to be a free market for these different ways of distributing ownership? Yeah. And in a certain sense, from the capitalist perspective, it's just like, great, go do that. Just don't tell me that I have to do that for my company because it's hard enough to have a to have a profit anyway. <laughs> you know, I remember when I was a kid and I was big technologist. You know, I had really gotten into computers and had had my own little computer business and things like that. And I remember having the insight. I was like, "This is a mess. The internet is a mess, and it's unreliable, and it breaks in all these ways." The government should just run the internet like that. It made such obvious sense to me at the time that like uh -huh. this should just be a government utility that water and electricity, which of course those things are, you know, like <laughs> depending on where you are, it's like, uh, you know, I didn't, I didn't know anything. It just, and then I remember my dad just being like, Oh, Robert, no, that's, that's, <laughs> that's socialism. You don't want to go down that road. Um, that's not going to mm -hmm. make the internet better. And then of course, as I grew and started to see actually kind of how things like the internet, you know, start to work, it's like, um, no, there's like the, the the freedom of being able to engage with it, um, it is is very important, and that there's a like if we're talking about limiting bad actors, um, then the way it's organized now is much more effective at limiting bad actors than if it were you know ruled by a sophisticated entity. Yeah, I mean this is this is in a way you could say like free marketism 101 or capitalism 101 is this idea that um, if the rules of engagement are fair enough by whatever kind of definition of fair you want to offer and like the 
it's just the state's job to just enforce the basic rules of the game of fairness. You might say like private contract law enforcement uh, when needed or property rights kind of like protections enforcement yeah. when needed. And once those things are kind of there, you just let everything else happen. And it really is the market works itself out, right? You could say like, do we need regulation or do we actually let the market regulate itself and i would say like this is on the pro free market side is kind of like well the best regulation for whether a thing is good or bad or desirable or undesirable as an outcome or the way it's just like well if you don't like the way that this company is producing a good or a service spend your money elsewhere that's right if somebody out innovates them then they'll go out of business or they'll have to change what they're doing. That's right? the, the idea. The idea that like, yeah, the, the competition itself moves towards a greater social good on the whole. Yeah. And I think that's, you know, that could be abstracted into so many different directions. You know, it's like people that are, you know, have tr trouble with immigration, you know, and say, so it's like, so yeah, if you don't like this country, go find the, you know, a country that, that you do like, as if that's an option for mm -hmm. people. Mm -hmm. And and in a lot of cases, I think for me as a young person, having more of kind of an idealistic romantic perspective of things like socialism was just like seeing we can do better. And now mm -hmm. that like I've I've been strung up by the, the slings and arrows of trying to you know run businesses and things like that, it's just like it's mm -hmm. like, well, for doing anything is hard. And so the fact that there's even an ability for us to do things that allow for wealth creation in the first place is a win. And yes, we can do better. And if anybody wants to to join us to like to level up, you know, in a way where we can start to create more opportunities, which is going to drive more talent, you know, in that direction, um, because there's more opportunities to share and profit, and you know, all of the innovations that are happening all the time, we're seeing these things. We're seeing companies, you know, get more sophisticated. And in fact, the meta markets, you know, the equities markets, and all of those things, is actually driven by more of the ESG goals. You know, um, excuse me, you know, um, there's the UN SDG uh, goals, but like the ESG investments, which used to be called social responsible investments, you know, environmental, uh -huh. social, and governance. It's like like you know, Blackstone is like you know the, the you know holds the, the largest holdings of any bank in the world and uh, their whole portfolio is is ESG you have to have environment social and governance uh responsibility for to mm -hmm. be included in that money and so it's like we're already seeing market factors solve a lot of the problems that people think that oh at the ills of capitalism yeah yeah so if i were to i'll do the critical side of that like sure um so this is a little hard for me to do because because I like everything that you said <laughs> to to a large degree, but I would say like look at this is just essentially um, ESG. It's a little bit like corporate social responsibility, that, or you might say covering your ass if you want to be a little bit more cynical about it. Like okay, these for profit companies, uh, or have you heard the term like greenwashing? Greenwashing oh, yeah, for sure. So it's like oh you're out there you know, essentially doing that bad capitalist thing, like exploiting whatever, the environment, labor, extracting surplus and keeping it for yourself, hoarding it. And then you're going to like put a veneer of 
corporate social responsibility or environmentally sustainable governance or, you know, blah, blah, blah. And that like, that's, uh, yeah, I'm definitely not giving this argument. It's sort of proper due. If I, were to, if I were to really put it, I'd be like, look, you can't, you can't buy your way out of the harm that you're doing. This is not like papal indulgences of the medieval times, right? Like you're, you're, you're basically being immoral and then you're trying to essentially purchase cover for uh, making your actions seem to be better. But the underlying system that allows you to essentially accrue surplus profits at the expense of essentially labor and environment, right? This is the kind of like, this is, you, you don't get to do that, right? This is this is like a deep critique of capitalism and, and the deeper critique is like that idea of aggregating a kind of ownership such that surplus profits can be generated for the owners. Yep is itself the problem right like this is this is this this is kind of the deep marxist or communist critique of that and the reason why that is fundamentally a problem is because you will you you are incentivized to essentially leave as much negative externality like negative side effects of what you're doing whether this is sort of like pollution or mm -hmm. the health and well-being of your labor force or whatever, you know, like you don't want to have to pay for that. You want that to essentially be sort of like accrued externally somewhere. Somebody else has to take care of that. And when you do that to the degree that you're, not having to take responsibility for the negative side effects of your economic activity, you get to essentially profit from that. And that profit then feeds back into this cronyism loop where you get to manipulate the market such that you can extract more profit. So there's this, this is the, am I, am I making sense? The interlinkage between these things, the ownership class gets to externalize as much of the negative side effects of their investments as they can. Yeah. So that they can essentially accrue more profit. And then whatever profit they're accruing feeds back into like essentially paying off politicians and lobbyists and lawyers so that they can essentially create more ways for them to externalize more of their negative side effects so that they can then therefore accrue even more profits. And this is not fair market things. This is actually totally what do they call exploitive or extractive yes. as a system. Yes. And I, you know, so, so if we talk, start looking at the externalities, right. And like, especially environmental externalities, that's where there's a really good conversation to be had here. And I think in a certain sense, this is where I want people to be more equipped to, to have these conversations. Um, and that there is a very valid, uh, criticism of how market driven forces, especially up through the 1970s, how there were dramatic next negative externalities on on the environment and mm -hmm. that especially when it comes to things like carbon pollution things like that where these are things that you 
you can't see right away, but have long lasting widespread impact is very easy for, yes, a, you know, crony capitalism to get away with, um, you know, earth murder <laughs> and, and make yeah. profits off of it. But then, you know, if I'm going to come around and speak to the capitalist side of things, it's what is it, the, the Moscow was it a Moscow agreement, the Moscow protocol? But it was, you know, it was know. The, the original agreement that, that basically put a price on pollution, like a market price yeah. on pollution and said that, mm -hmm. you know, it's like, okay, if you're going to pollute, you have to pay to pollute. And, and that radically decreased pollution, basically from where, what was happening in American industries in the 70s to now, it's like 90% decreased. Um, and that's mm -hmm. and that's been happening around the world because of a market-driven solution. And so a lot of the thinkers that I like to follow in relationship to this, you know, argue that the the solutions to, you know, the environmental degradation of the planet um, it, it are going to come from market-driven forces, are going to come from from capitalism. But I I want to do another episode specifically on environmentalism, and we can go deeper sure. on to you know problems and solutions on that side. But I think this is a very interesting dialectic here, you know, kind of a a double crux as far as you know this argument that we're having of like yes, the negative yeah. externalities are are kind of easy to hide from in some cases, yep. and on the pro side, it's like and there are there are solutions within that can help resolve that. Yeah. I mean, it's debatable as to whether like pricing carbon emissions as a regulatory move is like the usage, the proper usage of market forces, or if that's a kind of like a putting your thumb on the scale to alter market forces. And like, you kind of have, have people on the right basically saying like, no, 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 you're, you're screwing with free market forces by doing that. And then you might say the more kind of, Keynesian, you know, macro planner people are like, no, 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 we're just causing the people to price back in something that they have basically priced out as an externality. And then we kind of get the innovation in the market by essentially doing that. And I think that is an interesting debate. It, it is really sort of central in a way, because, you know, I could, I'm going to go lefty again on you. So great. I can make the argument. Uh, you know, one one if we go, go back historically, one of the innovations of uh, the capitalist form of production was this idea of ownership and private property, and the idea once we kind of had that as a as a legal construct, oh, people can, you know, beyond just their personal items, you could do things like own buildings or own swaths of land, right? And even the whole like, you know, go west and like lay yeah. stake your claim. Totally. And like this, idea, you know, the critics of it called this the enclosure where we went around. It was like, the, you know, the, the indigenous peoples were like, what do you mean you can own the land? That doesn't make any sense. Right. And like, but the, the Western kind of modernist capitalist mindset was like, well, you can own anything. Right. Like you just <laughs> just own it. Right. Like we just created this fiction called owning a thing. So, OK, here we are. I am now an owner of a, of a chunk of land. And in a way, this kind of grants me this right, like I can do whatever the heck I want on this chunk of land. I'm going to build a building and I own that. And I'm like, this is, belongs to me or us as a corporate entity and we can do whatever we want to with it. Like this idea that we're, 
you know, it's not a positive externality. It's like a positive internality. We're basically saying like, whatever is our thing, we can use that to profit from it however it is that we want. So if we want to build a factory and we want to hire people and we want to pay them so much money to build things and then we sell those things, we're just, we just get to use our land however it is that we want. But it's not like that's in a bubble, right? Your land and your factory and all, like there's, there's, you know, matter and energy <laughs> at a physics level coming sure. in and out of this fictitious enclosure, this legal construct, this, this, the part, this part is mine and the rest of it is not mine. And I can do whatever I want to with the part that is mine. But that itself sort of breaks down when you start thinking about emissions, especially, right? It's like, but your little building there is emitting crap. Your factory is 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 emitting particles and carbon emissions into the air, and that air circulates all around the planet. Or the the shit that you're dumping off into the stream or the river next to your whatever your water wheel or your hydroelectric generator, that's also putting crap into like, and it's like you're and this is the asymmetry that I think um, left critics of or socialist critics or environmentalist critics of capitalism will say it's like you know you like you like your private property when you get to profit from it but then you want to take the some of the things that you're doing to matter and energy into the environment and be like that doesn't belong to me that that part doesn't belong to me and that and like the part that i don't like you get to somehow like you know, carefully draw your little private sure. property line such that it excludes the part that's crappy, right? And like somehow there's like a legal construct that supports that. And then you kind of go like, well, this is not, this is this is a breakdown in the, in, in a meaningful distinction around private property, right? We need to like, no, no, no. If you want to like have this bubble of land and you're building and factory upon it and say, that's mine, I get to do whatever it is I want to, Guess what also belongs to you? All your emissions also belong to you, right? You have to pay for your emissions, right? And that, that's sort of a, a macro argument for essentially putting the cost of the externalities back inside the sort of property line of the owners. And like that would be a, yeah. an argument for a kind of left interventionism that- It's interesting. Externalities. Yeah. I mean, what comes up for me in response is like, it's when we get into the territory of regulations that all of the kind of sleaziness starts to emerge um, because all of a sudden you start saying, it's like, oh, don't do that on your land. And I'm all of a sudden I'm going to come up with legal reasons why I can do that. And I'm going to mm -hmm. grease the skids by, you know, paying politicians to go ahead and like have things go my way. So you can't tell me what to do. Um, exactly. Where I'm arguing on the side of, you know, the capitalist argument is like, no, create a market incentive for me to make more money by polluting less, by tracking and not having uh, negative externalities. And that has that has historical precedent of working very well of actually how far we've come along with ringing, you know, uh, bringing in all of the environmental impact. And this is the thing that a lot of people may be listening to this or just generally on the street today 
aren't going to be aware of or certainly agree with that actually the environmental impact that we've been having has been radically decreasing you know, over time, like specifically like compared to the seventies. Um, and this is drawing on Steven Pinker and, and things like that. And it's, and it's mm-hmm. through probably both sides, probably through regulations in some cases, and probably through market driven uh, incentives in other cases. I mean, this is another kind of taboo word issue because you might say, Oh, like an emissions tax. Sure, that's yeah. a, that's a market-based mechanism. And I could say, well, that's just regulation. No, exactly. Right? A tax, a tax <laughs> would be regulation as opposed to like a cap and trade type solutions, you know, but right. Isn't cap and trade solution a form of a tax? I mean, isn't that what you're doing? That's a, a good argument that we could take further. <laughs> <laughs> right. And uh, in a sense, yeah. yes, you know, it's, it's probably, it's probably yes on side uh, on both sides. And we are kind of arguing for, for the same thing. And, and that's, it's go, it's just like, obviously anybody that's listening to this that knows what they're talking about can see like, so yes, it's not Blackstone, it's BlackRock is the, uh, the asset management group that, uh-huh, uh-huh. that, uh, um, you know, has this. And then I, you know, a couple of additional things I want to weave in to this yeah. discussion as like, um, one thing people don't talk about a lot is the concept of ephemeralization or, or what's more called dematerialization these days of where that um, actually as the market and industry gets more innovative, we actually use less resources instead of mm-hmm. more, where it's like the logical conclusion in most people's minds that we are just going to continue to grow as a, you know the population bomb is going to continue to explode and we're going to keep extracting more resources, resources from the earth. When actually mm-hmm. the, the opposite is true. Actually, as things evolve, we draw less resources from, from the earth. And, and the, Buckminster Fuller was writing this back in the 20s, you know, and that's, mm-hmm. you know, his, he was a you know, serious polymath and he was arguing that eventually we could really be doing zero extraction and be creating even more than, than we have today, which when you look at like what's happening with like lab meets and, you know, all sorts of uh, interesting things, which aren't necessarily attractive to me, but do kind of follow the argument that it is possible to use less, less extractive resources and create more. Yeah. I mean, this is now to, this is like a good criticism of the critics of capitalism. And I, this is a good basis for it, yeah. which is, and this is one of the things we could attribute to the the dignities, the, the benefits of capitalism is its incredible, relentless drive for efficiency, right? This is, you know, it's not just the, we get more efficient at extracting natural resources, which is one of the things that capitalism does do, but we can actually cost reduction is an intrinsic incentive. Any company that is building a good or service, one of the knobs on there is the cost reduction knob. And if you start to realize, oh, my profit margin goes up, potentially, if I reduce the cost, then you're actually incentivized to drive cost out. And driving cost out is happens when you kind of create these certain efficiencies, which mean like, oh, you mean we want to require less matter and energy, basically, to produce the same economic benefit. And anything that is in this dematerialization or ephemeralization or category, anytime you can convert a thing, you know, instead of a book that has to be printed on paper, you can now get it on an e-reader while you just kind of like 
dropped down a huge chunk of the cost of getting those books in front of more eyeballs. And that creates more profit. So you can say that the profit motive itself does not equate to a motive for greater extraction. Like profit motive can create a drive for more efficient extraction, but a profit motive can also create a motive for just less overall extraction. Yep. Which I think is one of the brilliant innovations of capitalism is that is that the cost reduction knob is actually, you know, can be completely driven by the profit yeah. motive. Yeah, uh, yeah, I think the ebook readers is a good example. I mean, I think the the smartphone is like the greatest example because if you think of the number of devices that it yes. has replaced and the amount of materials and resources that all of those devices needed to be produced. And even though it's easy to take shots at the iPhone and what kind of precious metals it's abstracting from what side of the world and you know what kinds of negative impacts it has. Yeah, sure. There's definitely, you know, only forever, <laughs> there's more room to grow to, to make things better. But it, I think one of the things that I'm often finding myself argue for is to look at things, um, you know, as far as how, how they've progressed and, uh, yeah. and see that over time, things have actually gotten better. And then that, of course, gets into the arguments of people who are like, no, the, um, you know, the incremental isn't enough. You know, there has to be these, uh, these, these dramatic leaps and things before it's too late. And it's just like, well, could you delineate what that leap looks like? Like, can you give us a milestone that we can drive towards? Cause that's how you manage against things. But in a lot of cases, that's, uh, that's where the argument ends. Yeah. It's, it's trippy because, you know, like one, let me just kind of like do the both sides on this one. Like, one view is if, is if you sort of see that whole overall pattern of like collectivizing property in a private way and then being able to essentially like utilize that however it is that you want. Um, this is the kind of like, you know, means of production in private hands idea that Marx criticized. And like, and then you create these financial instruments layer on top of that. It's like, all these kind of exotic, you know, financial instruments that are, you know, traded in Wall Street and other kind of financial markets. That that whole system is really uh, a machine that is, um, I don't know, like borrowing against the future. Is it's essentially like creating the conditions of its own destruction because it's always going to be more incentivized to extract more, and then it will then run out of whatever it needs in order to continue so it's sort of like a, a like a slow sort of suicide this is this is the the main kind of critique of the whole system if, if you're against that fundamentally no matter what i say on the plus side it's sort of like yes but that's just greenwashing yes but there's still some other externality if you get rid of that one you're creating another one somewhere but if I were to kind of really be on the side of like, yay, free market, I would be like, look, in history, there's never been a thing that we've ever come up with. This really cool rule set around private property, voluntary exchange, right? Like wage labor, private collectivization, 
is so good at yeah. essentially like creating more wealth and distributing it more to more people. It's the greatest single generator of the social good that's ever been known, right? And like, if you only look at it in terms of its downside extractions, you're really missing out on its positive side, which is it's an ingenious way of carrying out a giant social good allocation function mm -hmm. that has a really great track record of lifting people out of poverty, of lifting people out of hunger, of like solving for illness and disease, creating creature comforts and protections from the environment. And, you know, the, it's just the greatest thing that humanity has ever come up with. And whatever it is that we might want to do better at, or, or like if we imagine that we could do better, it better do at least this good. Yeah. Right? Like, well, otherwise we're going to go ahead. Yeah, exactly. And it's just kind of like, it, what degree of reality do we want to be in relationship with here? And, and that's where I think it's what I, what I want for people is to kind of have compassion for all sides, you know, of, of that, like, there are people that have dedicated their lives to solving problems for their families, for their communities and for the world. And they are working on the backs of people that have been solving problems. And this is how far they've come. And it's pretty commendable. <laughs> like it's it's pretty amazing given the problems of being a com complex global species. Um, like there's yeah. amazing things, and it's easy to look at you know some some other perspectives and shows just like yeah, and these problems are pretty horrific, and something has to change now. You know, and I I, I would mm -hmm. love to encourage that person. It's like great, go and like join in. And I think what's been happening in the world right now through the the climate crisis, but even through the, the pandemic and then through the Black Lives Matter movement, and it's probably expiring a whole generation of people who have a clear career path for themselves, that mm -hmm. they're going to go and become experts in epidemiology or in you know social rights and, and things like that, and, and that we can continue up-leveling all of these dimensions um, in a great way. And hopefully that it's not just people aren't just saying it's like, oh, we're going to hell in a handbasket. And so therefore I'm just going to tear down structures until it's, you know, it's all torn down. And that's the only yep. solution. It's kind of like a suicidal kind of solution orientation is that, yep. you know, that there's only one way, one way out. So we have to destroy the enemy, which is us. People get into that mindset of tear it all down under certain conditions. I mean, if you think about, you know, what is it? Let them eat cake. The French aristocracy sure. before yeah, they kind yeah. of pulled out the guillotine and started chopping off all the heads. Like the revolutionary impulse comes to some degree when the like the disparity, this inequality thing, becomes more and more extreme and more and more apparent. And I think you know for the French people around that time, it was sort of extreme and really kind of in their face and apparent the difference between the poorest and the richest among them. And like this, these so-called features of capitalism that allow the capital accumulation to kind of turn into a giant feedback loop can lead, we kind of like set aside all the environmental stuff for a second, it can lead to simply this kind of social disparity, which is like, I don't, you know, like, is it really fair that this person makes, you know, sure. 10,000 times more than I do per hour? Does that make any sense at all? Right. We kind of 
Jeff Bezos versus an Amazon warehouse worker or something like this. You can say, well, that's not fair. And we kind of look at this disparity or we watch it on TV. We watch, you know, shows like Succession or Billions. And it's like, oh, and then there's kind of like this jealousy that's fomented by this kind of feeling, right? And then when people kind of go like, that's what it sort of persuades people that like any more of this system is no good because it leads to this giant disparity amplification system when we got to tear it down because it's fundamentally flawed because it's always going to do that over and over again. No well, and what. then it's going it, to, it's such an interesting argument because what's actually wrong with that, right? And at the end of the day, it's just the resentment that's generated by feeling jealous of people because, you know, it's like we were talking in the, the socialism episode, the zero sum fallacy. It's not like there's just only one pie and you only get this little slice and everybody else gets a bigger slice. It's like, no, there is ever increasing wealth and some people's wealth are increasing faster than others. And so it's like, you yeah. can be resentful that yours isn't growing as fast as the others, or you could look at how yours is growing. And now it's like, you know, people say it's like, well, wealth inequality leads to the possibility of revolution. Well, it's like, yeah, that's something that has to be watched, but not for the reason that wealth inequality is, is, is just inherently bad, but because it brews resentment. <laughs> and so it's like, to me, the problem is more resentment than it is. Well, like, I think I, I can make a very strong case for the, the reason billionaires should exist and, and how distribution of that level of power is important and stuff that maybe we save that for another episode. Yeah. Well, I mean, at the risk of recapitulating too much of what we did on the socialism side, I'll just repeat here briefly. Uh, I agree that resentment about or jealousy, whatever you want to call it, is part of the problem, which is really just a mindset thing. Yeah. But I could also say, hey, man, you know, wealth inequality does, in fact, generate further wealth inequality. If I have excess profits to just hire more lawyers and lobbyists to, like, just protect my position, that's me putting my thumb on the scales of free market forces. That's right. And I'm actually going counter to co comp competition. Number one. And number two, I'd say like, yeah, and there's still a whole bunch of people on this, on this planet that don't have enough food to eat or do not have access to cures to preventable diseases or are basically, you know, being sold into human trafficking and kind of modern forms of slavery. That's still happening. So that For that sure. is unjust, period. And that we should allocate something to stop those worst of the worst things. Cause like, Agreed. yeah, you could make an argument that like, oh, okay, you know, more people are coming out of absolute poverty than ever before by numbers, yes. But a socialist argument is more of a moralistic argument that says the, the inequality that allows these horrible injustices to exist must be changed somehow, right? And that's yeah. where this kind of revolutionary impulse, I believe it is grounded in something that's not just resentment over comparison it's actual moral has yeah. moral weight yeah and you know there's arguments around you know how how can urgency impact the prioritization of things because you know it's 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 not hard to say that because of the protests that have been happening through the summer there has been a a a rank order prioritization up of these issues um, yeah. Now we might argue how successful the solutions that are being presented are yet at this point, but nevertheless, people are investing in them, and uh, yeah. and it is making a difference that that 
the urgency, the inflammation is out there. There, there's a place I want to make sure we hit, which is a little bit of the conservative argument against capitalism, which you know Sir Roger nice. Scruton argues for in his book How to Be a Conservative a little bit, which we haven't really touched on. Which is a, it's a funny point of overlap between right. you might say like lefty socialists and sort of more traditional Burkean style conservatives. Yes. Whereas like there's a sense of like what the market wants to do is to expand and to put prices on more things. And we sort of like that for a lot of things like, you know, labor, goods, services, products, blah, 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 blah. But then it kind of starts to hit up against places where it sort of feels potentially like an ethical or moral violation. Like, do we want just, just to do a conservative one here. Do we want to put, uh, sex under market forces that's right yeah is there are there things that are sacred enough that that you can't put a price on them or we shouldn't otherwise it would undermine something important about the, the conservative position would be like if you allow market enclosure or the the private propertization of any like if i can just sell a kidney if i'm desperate for cash or if i can just sell myself into slavery indentured servitude, which was totally a market norm way back in the day. And the as Romans was and other sex, you know, uh, services. It, totally, totally. And if we, we allow that to happen, are we actually undermining some uh, more fundamental social fabric that is actually a precondition for good market norms to exist? And this is kind of the, the conservatives argument this is, this is where conservatism sort of splits with libertarianism in a way. And, and, and conservatism basically says, look, look, we still need this sacred bubble around things like the family, the local community, our, especially our religious communities together, where essentially we, you know, inside of that bubble, this is more, I guess, sort of socialist in a way, right? Like it's a gifting economy. It's like we're lifting others up who need to be lifted up. We're insulating, you know, putting price tags on things like, you know, kidneys and sexual access. And we're like, no, this is negotiated on a, on a person to person level, right? Like this, these norms themselves that are historically emergent traditions that exist for a good reason. And that if you go, you know, to free market about everything, essentially, you know, this sort of like the colonizing of the life world, which is, I think, a Habermas idea, or, you know, this, this idea that suddenly you're putting market mechanisms on top of everything. I mean, in your household, you know, do you like, you know, do you want to like pay your kids for chores, you know, oh, or like plenty of people all this kind of go stuff. down that road, you know, yep. and that's the cool thing. It's like, these aren't new things, right? People have been arguing against and for these things and experimenting with them in many ways. And I think that's what has me just greater appreciation for the elegance of the way things exist right now. And granted, I don't have to face a lot of the kind of gross level um, suffering that a lot of people do. So I have the advantage of being able, the privilege of being able to, to see, you know, how elegant like the evolution of things are that we don't live in a, just a completely capitalist country where anything can be put on the market. And we don't live in a, in a completely socialist, you know, communist country. We live in a, in a, in a, a high functioning social democracy that is mm-hmm. improving based on market factors 
factors and regulatory factors that are distributed among, you know, different stakeholders and in quite evolved ways. Um, you know, and there's always something to complain about and that can create tensions that can be integrated into greater levels of wholeness. And that's, I'm, I'm on the side of that. Yeah. Yeah. This blended economy idea that you just kind of were describing, you know, I, I sometimes wonder, is, is that really, is this really how evolution happens? It's like, we have these competing constructs and we sort of, they have, they sort of govern different domains of life and we just sort of allow them to kind of trade against each other, right? We sort of have like that's how I the feel state about it. and everything the state does. We have local community and everything the local community does. This is sort of more gifting or you might say more kind of primordial socialism, I suppose. It takes place in like religious communities or in households. And then, okay, this other thing, which is sort of the market part. And we, and we kind of have these, you know, these three domains and actually like to, to allow the norms of any one of these to sort of like take over the other two would be problematic and actually like having them sort of coexist, right? Like, you know, the state, the market and civil society are like the shorthand for these three domains. And like, sometimes I wonder if that's just the way that it, you know, needs to be like, let the friction at the borders between these domains be where the evolutionary dynamic is taking place. That's what I trust the most, mainly because that's what is, is happening. You know, that's, that's what exists. And, that's right. you know, and so, you know, you could say that there's an argument for the two-party system, but I think that it certainly could up, be upgraded in a in a way. But I'm I'm definitely not a new paradigm thinker. That's just like, oh, there's you know, there has to be a radical shift in things. I, I'm much more a belief in in kind of there there are leaps in evolution, but um, you know, but certainly mo most of that is informed by what is happening um, at these at these frothy edges. So cool. Yeah, why don't we, you know, why don't we wrap up here? This was yeah. a, quite a, a, a an enjoyable ride through, and it's interesting. So many of the conversations that you and I have, Porcelli, are like, I walk away being like, oh wow, we've got it so figured out, and you know, aren't da da da. da. <laughs> this is this is one of those times, and it's kind of poetic that we have the record button on that. I actually feel just like embarrassed for my lack of knowledge in a lot of cases. It's like, no, it's the Montreal hmm. Protocol, not the Mas Moscow Protocol, right? You know, uh -huh. you know, anybody listening, to this like, I hope they're not taking me seriously as an authority in any of these domains. Uh, as much as just like uh, the willingness to get into these conversations and see what you've got and and, uh, and be willing to learn more. Yeah, I mean, a closing thought for me is, you know, um, I don't necessarily think capitalism as we know it today is sort of like the, the best possible thing, but it, it really is an amazing innovation that kind of accrued over hundreds of years. You could say thousands of years of economic history and That's like right. different ideas like, like money is very ancient, right? Like, and you know, wasn't just, you know, the capitalist mode of production that where money was used in ancient times. There's a lot of what happens within the the game, you might say, of free market economics that is really just allowing that natural evolutionary dynamic, yeah, to continue. Yes. In this sense, you sort of think of the economy itself is an extension of biological evolution. Agreed. Which to me is just not just logically true, but it's it's also normatively beneficial to allow for the, the good parts of the evolutionary dynamic 
to to carry over into the way that we allocate goods and services at a social level. Not everything about biological evolution should be, because there's a lot of brutality in nature that we should try to mitigate in terms of our market. That's right. But like to, we should allow the good parts of evolutionary dynamics to be free to continue in the market. I fully agree. Um, And so, you know, I think this is, a good time to segue in if, and if you're still listening to us after, you know, going on this, this roundabout ride for this time, it's just like my desires for the ongoing of the series is we kind of, we've covered some foundations here, or at least, you know, hopefully transmitted some of like our values for what we're going through, going for here. My language clearly mm-hmm. isn't working that well today, but, um, you know, postmodernism, ca- socialism, capitalism, I would like to do one on environmentalism, but, we're going to start moving more in the direction of like, okay, specific, you know, subjects that are a little more tangible, a little less abstract. And so that Mm. I can start uh, bringing in more subject matter experts. And, you know, so things will be a little bit more relatable to, and not so kind of working in, in abstraction. And so, but this is good. This is a great way for us to get the gears spinning on these things. And I think there will be a, like a, a version 1.0 of the, <laughs> of these, these early recordings as now that we've kind of like scattered some arguments on the table and yeah. some, some of the actual authorities out there will kind of like whip, whip us into shape and help us uh, get more organized. <laughs> <laughs> this was fun. I liked it. I think we, I think we did some good work in this topic. I agree.